Welcome to the Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a coalition of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. I'm Maeve Conran, the coalition's managing editor, and today we'll hear about burrows in southwest Colorado. Butterflies in Utah. It's called the variegated fritillary. You can't see the backside of its wings, but it's like orange and yellow. It's really pretty. Wolves in Yellowstone. Just at first light, you might see wolves at the edge of the trees watching a herd of elk. And then it's like the wildness just prickles over your skin. And the battle to preserve wild spaces in the American West. Come on. 95% of the 225 million acres run by the BLM is open to oil and gas leasing. Why? From Rocky Mountain Community Radio, it's the Regional Roundup. Borough Fest has become an annual tradition in Mancos in southwest Colorado. This light-hearted event celebrates the link between the hard-working, stubborn animal and their human companions. KSJD's LP McKay attended the event in June and brings us this audio postcard. Hamilton is just non-soft. The competition is not, not, not getting to her nerves. She will do this in her own pace and her own time. My name is Kelly Smith and this is Hamilton. And this is Coco, and we are up from Yuma, Arizona. We come up with a whole group of Arizona folks and uh, like to do some Burrowfest shenanigans. Uh, is this your first time here? No, we've actually done it since the start. We didn't have our two donkeys the first year, but we borrowed some from some other folks. So we've done it all four years that they've had it. Now it's the second time going through these scores. I feel like these burrows are starting to get a swing of things. Like this. So I'm feeling a little more familiar. A little less frightening now. What goes into coming here? Do you do training? What what kind of stuff do you get into? Yes, we do do training with them. We do obstacle course training. I don't know if you noticed that the in the podium, we do a lot of training on urban parks and things where we live. And so we do, we'll, they'll have like sandstone benches and things like that that we teach them to go up and over. We also do the burrow racing. And I'm actually part of a nonprofit called Bray, Burrows Rock, Arizona and Yonder. We've got a couple of other of our board members here today with their donkeys, and so we do the burrow racing, we do obstacle and play days, we do meetups to practice this sort of thing, and we also do some outreach where we take the donkeys around to town and just let people meet them and learn about donkeys. For Hamilton here, um, what is his, what was his biggest uh, obstacle? His biggest obstacle to overcome is actually leaving Coco. They're very bonded. And so once we get going, once we get a little bit further away from Coco and he, I give him a cookie, once we get far enough away and he realizes there's snacks to be had, he'll go through pretty quickly. I do usually, especially the first time, we need to let him stop and sniff and look and make sure all the footing's good for him and he knows what he's doing. And as long as I give him a little bit of time to think about it, he's usually pretty good about going over everything. But the key is just let him let him think and let him know it's safe and then he'll go right along. And how old is Hamilton? Hamilton is six. 
Amid the mounting pressures of climate change and habitat loss, protected areas like national parks and monuments can be a refuge for wildlife, including the very tiniest. Curious folks from around the region came together recently during the first annual Bears Ear Butterfly Count in Utah. KZMU's Molly Marcello reports. On the side of the road in Bears Ears National Monument, a group of about 10 people are taking in the landscape. There are lovely canyons of nice, vibrant red with brush all over them. They're lush green and we have nice yellow flowers. That's Melissa De La Paz. We're making these observations because, well, we've been instructed to. And everyone's around looking at this landscape and there's people out here with nets <laughs> trying to catch butterflies, but so far failing. <laughs> That's right. This group is trying to carefully and gracefully observe and catch butterflies. I'm looking for a shape that doesn't look like it belongs on the flower there. I'm like, yep, there's a weird looking triangle sitting on top of that flower. Probably a butterfly. Rob Hanawacker, an expert at spotting and catching butterflies. In this little group, he has the most experience with it. And just a few paces from where we're standing, he spots something. One checkered white. No. Becker's white with the bee. Becker's white, a butterfly known from Mexico to Canada. This one flies off, evading capture from Hanawacker's net. Because it was upset I got its name wrong. This is the first annual Bears Ears butterfly count. A chance for citizen scientists to learn along with experts like Hanawacker. He describes himself as a naturalist and has led these types of counts for years in Bryce Canyon, Grand Canyon, and the LaSalle Mountains near Moab. We have a, a neat concept here with uh, uh, what's called uh, island biogeography. Um, we have these high country areas that are surrounded by arid grasslands, juniper pinyon, and, and pretty stark desert. So these little high country areas are really like islands, and uh, you'll have populations that'll fluctuate, and they're much more vulnerable to uh, environmental change. So noticing what's out there now, even in an informal butterfly gathering, can be important. The Xerxes Society advocates for conservation of invertebrates. And they call butterflies valuable pollinators that support the health of ecosystems. Like many other insect species, butterflies are experiencing declines. The Xerxes Society estimates 19% of butterfly species in the U.S. are at risk of extinction. And it's not just the ones with special habitat needs. Butterfly counts can help us keep track of like the species that are in the area and like why we're protecting the area. Ricky Begay, volunteer manager with the Bears Ears Partnership. Folks might know the organization by its old name, Friends of Cedar Mesa. Butterflies are experiencing changes due to habitat loss, climate change, disease, pesticides, invasive plants. Protected areas like parks and monuments can be a refuge. Yeah. So this is the first um, Bears Ears um, butterfly count that I know of. Um, I really want to bring the community out and show them like what life is out here and kind of showing what we're trying to protect and like what species are here and what species are rare or like what new species are coming into the area. I want to make sure like the next generation knows what was here because um, they might never ever see it again. The gay organized this count. And he's excited because there are people here who work for Arches, Canyonlands, Natural Bridges, and Mesa Verde National Parks, like De La Paz. Okay, so we have 
Um, five white butterflies. She's reviewing the list of butterfly sightings so far, and she says she's here to gain broader knowledge about this region. At Mesa Verde, she's working on a trails crew, doing lots of whetstone work. And so we wet the concrete and we wet the like the pavement and we're going to stove stuff like that and all the butterflies rush in and drink the water. And like there's some really nice blue ones and some white ones as well. I'm just like, wow, I, I wish I knew what they were. <laughs> Troy Rudy brings one to her attention. It's the first time he's held a butterfly and he's doing it very carefully with forceps. It's called the variegated fritillary. You can't see the backside of its wings, but it's like orange and yellow. It's really pretty. Butterflies are a type of moth, and they're easier to count than others because they carry out their business in the daytime, just like humans. Hannah Wacker says researchers and volunteers in our region have documented 130 species of butterflies in Southeast Utah alone. They range from the common to the endemic, meaning species known only to exist here and nowhere else in the world. There's certainly some species that have very isolated populations. They're going extinct. There's some butterflies that are going extinct. They're more adapted to the last epoch or even the epoch prior, which was the Pleistocene epoch. Um, so that's kind of like seeing a a ground sloth, a giant ground sloth, you know, um, to actually have those kinds of butterflies still in existence. Hanawacker tries not to get too precious about species. He advocates for the protection of the entire ecosystem, not just because of a few species within it. But checking them off, it's clear, that's kind of the fun of it. As the day goes on, we gain elevation, where the plant nectar is juicier, And there's more and more butterflies. Um, I've got one white line sphinx butterfly. I've got two gray-haired streak. The hair streaks get their name from little hairs that extend beyond their hind wing. So it's thought if a bird were flying by, it would think the head is right here where the movement is. But the butterfly scoots on that way. It's so tiny. It's teeny tiny. (laughs) Beautiful little... um, sort of patterning, uh, light-colored silvery patterning, the lines. And then you, even though it's a little beat up on the end, you can still see the tail somehow survived. Hannah Wacker removes the forceps, and the teeny tiny butterfly rests on his finger. It's just like sitting on your finger to like catch its bearings, I guess? I think so. I think you're right. But what is nice, though, it seems like if you handle the butterfly okay, uh, oftentimes they go right back to what they were doing before. And, uh, and that's really a good sign. The butterfly takes flight, searching for another nectar-filled plant in Bears Ears National Monument. Yeah, two new species for the list. You're listening to the Regional Roundup from Rocky Mountain Community Radio. Now to one of the most iconic places in the American West, Yellowstone National Park. Best-selling author Peter Heller's latest novel, The Last Ranger, is set in Yellowstone. It's a place Heller himself has fallen in love with. I spoke with him recently at the Boulder Bookstore as part of KGNU's Radio Book Club. In the last few years, uh, even uh, during COVID, I've gone up to Yellowstone to the Lamar Valley 
which has uh, been called the American Serengeti, and it's a place that uh, hosts, um, is habitat for um, herds of elk, of deer, uh, uh, has um, many grizzly bears, and it has several wolf packs. Uh, and I, when I first got to Yellowstone, I thought it was gonna be like Jellystone. Uh, I thought it was sort of, you know, I don't know, um, sort of clownish or, or cartoonish, I guess. Uh, but when I, and it, it, it is a circus, you know, along the main roads, but I found that as soon as you get off the main road and go up the little tributary creeks and follow a trail up, you get half a mile from the parking lot and there is nobody. I mean, nobody likes to walk more than 100 feet, apparently. <laughs> And I'd go f up these trails for, you know, a couple miles, and I'd fish all day with just like a bison, um, you know, grazing right next to me. There's some big old bull who's survived, you know, years and years of weather and attacks, and, and maybe there'd be a grizzly bear at the edge of the woods grubbing, and uh, I just, I loved it. And so when I write the way I do, you know, eventually it seems like this place was going to have to inform one of the books. You're so iconic when, as a Western writer, you write about the West, you write about nature. What are the ongoing challenges with that as we're seeing ongoing destruction, the climate crisis, more and more nature and wild areas being lost to various different things? How does that change you as a writer and your writing process? It's very hard to be an artist right now because what's happening in the world, you know, um, is very, very painful if you're aware at all. And it's. E Sometimes I feel like, you know, I sh I'm playing the violin on the deck of the Titanic. And who am I playing to? You know, the tsunami of climate change is coming, of habitat loss. And uh, it's so sad, it's so heartbreaking that, uh, you know, coral reefs are dying, that, you know, tens and tens of thousands, probably a million species depend on these reefs, and they're really going away. How do we deal with that as human beings, you know, uh, as moral uh, beings? Um, it's very tough. And sometimes I think I should just quit writing fiction um, and just dedicate myself to, you know, doing a startup that will help people uh, log in their environmental contributions in their neighborhood, in their city, in their, in their country. And, um, I think that's a cool idea and help people, you know, get community that way and, and feel like incremental changes are making a difference. And then I think, dang it, you know, I'm, I'm a storyteller. I don't want to spend five years doing a startup and coming to Boulder and finding venture capitalists, you know. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, it's really tough. Like, what do we do? And uh, so uh, I've come to the conclusion that, you know, we do what only we can do, like she said, and you know, like I tell stories, I love it, that's where I get into flow. And then at the rest of my day, be as responsible as I can. And, uh, and hope, you know, I think that these issues are inevitably inform the fiction and you know, I tell myself that maybe that might make some difference, maybe it might prompt some people to get, at, get to Yellowstone, to, to get out into the mountains, to um, become aware of these other species as uh, as important citizens of the planet as we are. I mean, I think that's that's the education. It's like, hey, all these other species have a vote. They have just as much of a right to be here. We've all evolved for over billions of years to this point. Let's respect each other. If I, you know, if I can engender that in the fiction, well, well, good. I'll keep I'll keep fiddling. 
Best-selling author Peter Heller speaking on KGNU's Radio Book Club. His latest novel is The Last Ranger, set in Yellowstone. To round out today's show, we'll hear next from the leaders of two environmental non-profits. Wilderness Workshop, based in Carbondale, works to protect public lands in western Colorado. Earth Justice is a public interest environmental law organisation that's been involved in multiple lawsuits to protect the environment. Earth Justice President Abigail Dillon and Wilderness Workshop Executive Director Will Rausch sat down for a discussion recently at Explore Booksellers in Aspen. This was done in partnership with Aspen Public Radio. Our partnership goes back decades with a focus on Western lands and preventing fossil fuel development on those lands. When you think about kind of that long arc of work to protect lands across the West from things like fossil fuel development and coal extraction, and I think our shared goal of ultimately ending our reliance on fossil fuels, where are we on that curve and and how do we reach the end? Such a timely question. I feel like from the moment I started working on environmental issues back in 1999, uh, it felt like the West was still in the minds of the federal government, a land purely designed for extraction. And so, so many of our early cases um, were about the ability to protect, the authority to protect. So um, the roadless rule, for example, was very controversial. Can you actually use forest lands to protect water, to protect species? Are you required to use every last acre for mining, for logging, for oil and gas drilling? And that is still a worldview that many people put forward, that our lands are here to be used and and by use to be extracted from. And that is a culture that runs deep in public lands agencies, no matter who is elected, no matter who the politically appointed officials are. Your um, measure of success as a BLM field officer may be how many oil and gas leases that you've been able to process. And so changing the culture of these agencies to think um, of the federal government as a steward of publicly owned lands rather than a concierge of publicly owned lands is, is you know, one thread of the battle that, that Will fights every day and that we do at Earth Justice. And then there's another ethos. You know, these lands have been put into protection. Uh, Congress has... Um, put in place something amazing like the Antiquities Act. We're using it to designate monuments, an incredible one in the Grand Canyon. Uh, just, um, was it two? I'm losing track of time Tuesday. Yeah, just yesterday. Yes, yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> um, and so there's this extraordinary um, recognition that it, that is not new, that public lands are to be protected generationally. And this administration in particular came in with just extraordinarily ambitious commitments on 30 by 30. That's just a wildly ambitious goal. And um, Secretary Holland is someone who believes in it. And she's putting her full political capital behind 
lands preservation with an emphasis on traditional indigenous knowledge, uh, respecting the stewardship of tribes. It's really exciting to see. And so when I think about where we are in kind of our public lands trajectory, I think the emerging con consciousness around refugia for people, for species, for water is ascending. And I think we will see the federal government get out of the oil and gas business in our lifetimes, which I wouldn't have said 10 years ago. Um, it was astonishing that President Biden put, and believe me, I know there's a coda to this, made it one of his campaign promises to stop drilling on federal lands. It was extraordinary that he did that. And I think it reflects um, a momentum that is not dead, notwithstanding Willow, which is a very close fight to my heart. We're in the thick of, of fighting that um, mammoth project. So on the one hand, I think, you know, I can see an end to oil and gas leasing, but as long as every election turns on the price of, of gas at the pumps, both parties, there will be an optics problem of um, winding down our oil and gas leasing. So we, ha we have to um, break that reliance that we have as a country on gas. Um, I do think the administration's taken a really important step proposing new rules about how to run the oil and gas program. These are the basics. Like the the royalty should be higher for an industry that has record profits. The bonding requirements, which haven't been uh, amended in 60 years, come on. 95% of the 225 million acres run by the BLM is open to oil and gas leasing. Why? So these are rules that you know start taking the most important wildlife habitat, the most important sacred sites off, getting bonding requirements into a more reasonable framework, not there yet. These are no regrets, common sense changes that must be made. Um, and I think they will kind of affect the calculus of, of how cheap it is to extract. But we're going to have to bring a climate lens to this. Ultimately, we're going to have to have something that is fully within the president's control, accountable to climate imperatives. We can't just make these decisions anymore based on the idea of someone's asking for the lease, you got to give it to them. We've got to say, how much carbon can we afford to put into the atmosphere? And what the scientists are telling us is none. That's politically implausible at this moment, but I think what we will live through in the next 10 years will make it politically plausible in our lifetimes, and I hope sooner rather than later. Shifting gears a little bit, I'm, I didn't mention I'm a um, trustee of Earth Justice, and it's a real Thank honor. Thank goodness. Um, and, you know, I think I'm never prouder of the organization or more grateful for the thoughtful and intentional work of you and the staff than when we're working to center equity and justice in, in the work of the organization and, and really across the environmental movement. Um, and so I'd love for you to just give us, you know, kind of a big picture sense of what that work looks like at Earth Justice, you know, why you think it's important, and then maybe go a little bit deeper uh, with some examples. I know you've just come back from a trip in the Gulf Coast uh, where those issues are front and center, but, but kind of start, start big. Starting with the Gulf. The only reason why we have, can have, such a fossil dependent 
country is because we don't care as a society about poisoning people in the Gulf South and in the Ohio River Valley. You could not have so-called cheap oil and gas at the scale that the US has. We are the biggest oil and gas producer in the world and we are its biggest consumer as well. And that system rests on poisoning people. And when you go there, there is not a person you will meet who hasn't had cancer themselves or lost at least two close relatives, many more friends, or most likely both. It is astonishing. It's one thing to read an EPA reporting cancer rates exceeding what's thought appropriate by our federal officials. It is another thing to go and experience it. The way that Cancer Alley is shaped up is a direct through line from slavery. And so one way I think about the environmental movement's requirement to deal with the legacy of colonialism, of um, a campaign to exterminate native peoples across North America, to deal with the racism that still defines our society in so many ways, is it is the channel through which environmental harm is allowed to flow. And if we were a more equitable and just society, you couldn't have these things. You know, it's, it's why a town like Aspen, or I live in Berkeley, California, it's very healthy to live there because there is an assumption that you have to protect people's health and you find a way to do it. We're a rich country, we have the money to do that. And so, in my view, it's not a weather, this isn't a trendy, oh, it's time to care and be better people. It is, we will never solve these problems if we allow fundamentally racist, oppressive systems to fuel polluting industries, bottom line. The other thing is that, I mean, business has known this forever. The best, smartest, most strategic teams are people from all different backgrounds who bring all kinds of different insights and ways of thinking to bear. The smartest people in the world, the smartest young people in the world want to do this work. And I want Earth Justice and I want every client group we work with to have a platform for every person no matter what their background is, what their life experience is so that we can bring that full power to bear. And so it has been my mission to make Earth Justice that platform, and I'm so thrilled to have um, a board and Will in particular that's been deeply supportive of that. And when I joined Earth Justice, I think uh, on our 80-person staff, there were perhaps two people of color. Now our leadership team is 50% people of color. The organization is 45% people of color. And we are not just um, proud to be working in Colorado, we're working in Houston, and we're working in um, New Orleans, and we have an incredible um, group of Native lawyers running a tribal partnerships program. And so when we think about a resurgence of mining in this country for critical minerals, we are, we are working in Indian country with our partners to think through how that can happen in a way that is not going to ravage Indian country again. That was President of Earth Justice Abigail Dillon speaking with Carbondale's Wilderness Workshop Executive Director Will Rausch. It was recorded at Explore Booksellers in Aspen in partnership with Aspen Public Radio. And you can hear the entire conversation 
at aspenpublicradio.org. Just click on the tab Ideas, Speakers and Lectures. You've been listening to The Regional Roundup, a production of Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public and community radio stations in Colorado, Wyoming, Utah and New Mexico, including this one. Thanks to KSJD, KZMU, KGMU and Aspen Public Radio for today's show. Our theme music is Take Me Somewhere by Joel Adam Russell. I'm Maeve Conran. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 